It's a sermon series. It's uh, personal studies and journaling. It's uh, small group discussions, we hope, as well as informal discussions with people who are part of our church family here. We, we're hoping for just kind of every once in a while you're bumping into people here for one reason or another, and you have a conversation about the things that you're reading out of the 50 Days to Vitality journals. Um, it's, this is aimed at helping us to become a more faithful and fruitful church, uh, more of a vital Great Commission church going out into the world around us and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Great Commission, let me remind you of that, Matthew 28:18 to 20. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is part of a long-range follow-up to our revitalization conference that some of you may remember from just over a year ago, when Ken Pretty came out from our denomination's Go Center, our revi- church revitalization center of our denomination, and presented to us that uh, weekend um, conference he preached for us. We've been following up, really, uh, among our leadership with our elders and our um, staff and the vision team that was formed in part in response to our um, revitalization conference. You'll, you'll actually see more of the fruit of that work as we uh, progress through this um, 50 days. Actually, this 50-day process is part of the fruit of their work, deciding that this would be something that God was calling us to as a congregation for us to join together in this um, process. Your role in this is to read, read, read the, the scriptures, read the, the short devotional thoughts for each day, um, Think, write down your own thoughts, share them with others. So read, think, share. Watch for and participate in activities that come up along the way as you are able. You'll see that there's a, there's a schedule in there for the sermons and the themes for the next several weeks. You'll notice too that there are uh, names in there other than mine. It seemed to me that it would be a good thing as we think about reaching out to our neighbors of being a great commission, proclaiming the gospel sort of church, and to be effective, that it would be good to hear uh, different voices. So there are um, others besides me who are going to be doing the messages on Sundays. Next week, it's Brad and Becca Drake. Hey, Brad and Becca, you ready for next week? Good. Yep, thumbs up. Great. Okay. Um, and then others uh, along the way that you'll have an opportunity to hear from around these themes that Can Pretty and the Go Center folks have designed for us. Revitalization has to do with infusing new life and new vitality into a person or into a group. And as we begin, I, I want you to hear from me right away, right up front, that I actually think that we're pretty vital around here. I don't want you to hear this message or see this series of messages essentially as a critique. Um, We're not good enough. We're not doing well enough. That that really isn't the intent. I, I don't want you to hear it that way. However, when it comes to life or to sharing radically in the life purposes that the living God has given to his people, there's always room for more, right? I mean, if we're talking about life, can you have too much? Let's have more, right? 
um, if God is calling us to greater faithfulness according to his desires for his world and for his people, and if God is moving in our midst to accomplish these goals, we want to move with him, don't we? Yes. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. You guys, you guys are good with those cues, right? I'm hoping it's not like, just like Pavlov's dogs here. You know, you ring the bell and they salivate. Yeah, but, but yes, we want to say yes to that. If, if God is moving, and we believe that he is, part of the reality here for me, and I think for our leadership, I'll speak for our leadership, is that we believe that what's happening here, this whole 50-day thing, is not essentially a technique that we're doing or a program or process that we're doing in order to cause something to happen that isn't happening. But rather, it is something that we believe is part of us fitting in with, going along with, getting in step with what God is, has already got going here. That this is a good way for us to agree and cooperate and partner with God in something that He's already doing. Now, there are a couple of initial questions that I think are very important for us as we embark on this revitalization uh, adventure. Questions about our church family and about revitalization in general. First of all, why? Why are we doing this? What is the motivation? There is a modern attraction in American church life these days toward ideals and techniques, any ideals and techniques, that will increase church attendance. Now, such increase is a good thing. More people out of the community coming to worship God. More people hearing and responding to the good news of Jesus Christ and the things of God. More people seeing themselves move from death to life because of the work of Jesus Christ for them. These are good things. Legitimate movements, and there are many, like our denomination's Go Center, can be attractive to church people like us because they will help us grow in numbers. But, do we want to be used effectively for God's purposes? Or are we trying to use God for ours? It's difficult to tell sometimes if the real motive isn't simply getting more butts in the seats. Butts in seats make churches successful according to modern entrepreneurial values. Very real, uh, uh, very much a force in modern American church life. Butts in seats bring glory to churches. And, I hasten to add, to pastors. True confession. We have not done very well here in my 20 years as pastor with this butts in seats thing. I've had to come to terms with what this means or might mean concerning my own desires and my own abilities. This is admittedly one of the reasons why we are doing this revitalization program. We are a church uh, identified by ourselves and probably truly identified by any mathematical tools that you would use as a church that is in or headed toward decline or at best what's called recline, which is plateauing, 
Um, we've essentially had the same worship attendance here for quite some time. And the same membership here, generally, for quite some time. Um, we are not a church that you would look at and say, wow, there's a church that's an incline, a church that's growing. We are not, have not been, in 20, the 20 years I've been here, a, quote, growing church, if what you mean by growing is butts and seats. So if butts and seats is important, covenant has not been a success story. But I'm okay with that. Why? You are not a butt. And you can quote me on that. You are not a click on a turnstile that helps things add up to some sort of group success. You and the person sitting next to you and the people sitting around you, you are a precious and mysterious deep and complicated, made in God's image, living heart, soul, mind, body, human. You are the highest of all earthly expressions of God's creativity and character. And you were all of that before you walked in or wheeled in here this morning. You are not here to bring glory to me or to this particular local expression of the body of Christ called Covenant Presbyterian Church. You are here to be part of God's forever family, to be loved and to love, to be built up and to build up. To learn and to share and to do God's work and to shine God's light and to bring Him glory. So, at the outset of our 50-day revitalization adventure, let us be as clear as we can be about our intended motivation. This is not about our growth or, quote, success as a church. Neither is it about the reputation or glory of Covenant Presbyterian Church. We are not opposed to growth as a result of God's will and our faithfulness. But we are not going to use God to build our own little covenant kingdom and then call the whole thing revitalization. This is about God's will for us and for our neighbors, and it is about the glory of God. If God is calling us into a more vital and fruitful partnership with Him to see more of His people in Reno, Nevada come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I am confident He will show us what He can do and remind us that He is worthy of all praise. This is finally about our neighbors. They matter. We choose to love them. We want them then to know the love of God in Jesus Christ that has been revealed to us. So, while I'm okay with not being a successful church... I'm not okay with being a lazy or unfaithful 
or unloving church? So then here's the second question. How? How is this revitalization thing going to happen? What, what are the essential resources that we have? What, what's our essential strategy? Here's a question. Is this revitalization going to happen by God's will and power or by our desire and effort? And the answer is yes. It is a great mystery found on every page of our Bibles and in every day of our lives that God chooses to do his eternal work in partnership with his people. Ours is a relational God. What is happening around here and what will happen around here that matters happens in partnership with God. Revitalization is about us and God. God is our greatest and our only truly necessary resource. Life is in God. God is not a static force, but a dynamic presence, like an active person among active people. God is always acting upon His creation. God is creator. He is also sustainer. The sun came up this morning. Beautiful. Because God acted upon it. My last breath. Happened. By God's action. God is always acting upon us. Always revitalizing us. And encouraging us toward revitalization. So it may well be that the important question we ask over the next couple of months is not, what do we need to do to be revitalized as God's people, as God's church? But rather, how are we resisting God's call and action toward new life? To help us with this initial how question, following the format given to us by Ken Pretty in our Go Center denominational folks, we are going to take a look at a man who experienced a dramatic revitalization and whose subsequent work left an indelible mark on his people, God's people. His name was Nehemiah. Let's listen. Let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 1 together. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Susa was the capital of Persia. Persia was the great empire, the greatest empire of its day, the greatest empire that had ever been up to that point. He was there in the capital. That Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. Judah is where Jerusalem is. Judah is about a thousand miles away. It's about a four-month caravan trip to get there. So people have made some very long trip to make it all the way back from Jerusalem, Judah, all the way to Susa, where um, Nehemiah is, serving in the court of the king. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, 
The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear and receive, to understand and to apply your word. Lord, I pray that you'd help me, help us to hear your invitation to greater life. Your invitation to trust in you, that in our partnership with you, you will not use and abuse us. You will not discard us but you will infuse your life into us and you will give us joy and fulfillment beyond anything we could construct for ourselves. Lord, overcome our fear and foolishness by the power of your word and the power of your spirit in our midst here today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this message is uh, Vitality Begins. It seemed like a good title. It's actually the one that Ken Pretty puts in his book. Um, We could have called it The Revitalization of Nehemiah because that's really what we're going to look at. Briefly, I want us to look at what happens in this chapter. Something happens to Nehemiah that changes him, um, that causes him to to turn away from, from the life that he has, and it is a really good life. In every worldly sense, the best a guy could hope for. And to turn away from that and turn instead to a a call and a vocation of difficulty and challenge, don't know if he's going to be able to do it, of opposition and great risk. Something happens. So I want to take a look at the things that happened to him. First, what happens to Nehemiah is he has a sudden realization of God's call. A sudden realization of God's call. And this is a radically new thing. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. You know, if it might have been me, in my own strength, and my own kind of perspective on things in Nehemiah's place, that verse would read differently. As soon as I heard these words, 
I said, gee, that's too bad. What time's dinner? That doesn't happen to him. He hears it, and he sits down, and he weeps, and he mourns for days. Nehemiah's call comes with apparent force upon him. And it begs a question for us, initially. What is God calling us to? What is God calling you to? And it seems to me in response to that question, there's, there's really two, only two possible situations that, that you're in, that I'm in. One is, you know, I know what God's calling me to. I've heard it, and it has hit me like a ton of bricks. There's no question. I know what God wants me to do. And then, and then it's just a question of, am I trying to do it or am I resisting it? But I know, and it's, it, it weighs on me. It, it, it's a force in my life. That's one possibility. The other possibility is, honestly, we're saying, hey, I hear what you're saying, Pastor, but I, I can't relate. I do not have any sense that God is asking me to do anything right now in particular. I mean, be a good boy, be a good girl, you know, go to church once in a while. But um, I, I really don't have the sense that I, that I have a call. This is what God wants me to do, and I've got to do it. And if that's a situation for you, honestly, which it very well might be, my suggestion is if you don't have a call that you're aware of, ask for it. But when you ask for it, realize you're asking for it and get ready. Second, Nehemiah has a sweeping sense of outwardly oriented identity. Um, continuing in verse 6, Hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Nehemiah has a cushy mid-5th century job. It's like the best job you could possibly have. His job is to be the cupbearer to the king. It tells us that at the end of the chapter. A cupbearer is the guy that is supposed to drink wine and eat food fit for a king. Because it's food and drink that the king's actually going to consume after you do. The idea is you drink it first and if anybody's poisoning the king, we'll find out when you drop dead instead of the king. But there are, there are safeguards in place. That doesn't happen a lot. And so it's, it's not as dangerous as it may seem. And you get to eat at the king's buffet every single day. And it's a position where you have and live in the trust of the king, the most powerful guy on the planet. This is a good job. It would be easy, it would be beneficial for Nehemiah to maintain an inwardly focused perspective. I have got it made. God has blessed me. We can even get God in the equation here. God has blessed me. He, he's been good to me. Here I am. Wow, this is great. Keep your job. Keep the king happy. Keep your head down. Don't make waves. You certainly aren't going to go to the king and ask that he let you go away and go build somewhere else. What? Who would want to do that instead of this? Well, that's Nehemiah's situation. But he, instead of identifying with his cushy job, safe, secure, nice, instead, 
he identifies with people a thousand miles away. A four-month trip by caravan. You know, they won't know if he doesn't care. But God calls him to care about his people and Nehemiah responds in faith. I would add, part of the wisdom here for Nehemiah in this stark contrast between what he has and what he's called to do and the risks involved is he trades in a life of absolute comfort for a life of real meaning and purpose. And it's a good trade. How about us? You know, most of us aren't getting paid to eat at the buffet. If you are, let me know. And if you need any help and assistance, I'll be, I'll be there for you. Um, but, but we have pretty cushy lives. I mean, the, the, living in Reno, Nevada in 2019 in America, we, we have a lot of luxuries that are just part of our lives, right? Do we have a, a similar kind of push? Don't make waves. Just enjoy what you got. Don't, don't mess it up. Don't risk it. Nehemiah identified with people a thousand miles away. Can we identify with people a thousand feet away? Gabe gave a wonderful message at the uh, sunrise service on, on Easter morning. And, and part of what he shared was a story. I'm going to so keep I can summarize here a little bit. Thank you. Thank you for that permission right here. Because if you didn't give me permission, I was going to do it anyway. But he told this wonderful story about being in charge of a, of a trip with friends where they, they went on a hike up in the Tahoe, up in Tahoe area. And uh, one of their friends got lost, just utterly lost. They, they called for him. They looked for him. They couldn't find him anywhere. They looked all over the place. They eventually had to call his mother who came up. Man, that must not have been comfortable. And called search and rescue. And they're looking all over for this guy. And they cannot find him. And they, they pretty much come to the conclusion he must be dead. I mean, they're yelling for him. They're searching high and low. Search and rescue is looking for him. Well, he made us wait till the end of the message to, to find out what happened. I'll, I'll tell you right now. They did find his friend. He had actually fallen down a bunch of rocks. And had badly sprained his ankle. So he wasn't able to get out. Search and rescue actually eventually found him. Somebody rappelled down in the middle of the night and got him and brought him out. So happy ending that story. But looking for a friend. You ever had an experience like that? Somebody was lost? And, and when that happens, you know, a family member, a child, a, a friend, it's like that's all there is. The whole world. There's nothing else in the world except the fact that your family member, your friend is lost. Didn't know I had an experience like this. It was your sister. We're at, I think it was Mervyn's. Wasn't Mervyn's? Yeah. We're at Mervyn's and they, and they had these, well, we were shopping at Mervyn's. Okay, my wife was shopping. My job was to watch little Maggie. She was three years old at the time. Danelle did her job very well. I, I was watching her. I really was. It's one of these bad dad, bad husband stories. I was watching her. I just turned away for like 10 seconds. Honest, I think. I turn back, she is not there in this department store. I, I, I'm looking around, you know, I, initially I'm not saying anything, I'm not panicking, because I don't want Danelle to know that I lost her. I'm looking all around, for, you know, kind of walking around. She is nowhere to be found. I go to Danelle, uh, do you know where Maggie is? Do you see her? No. Maggie, 
Maggie, where are you? We're looking around. We cannot find her. We're, you know, a little, little wider search. She is nowhere to be found. We start yelling, Maggie, Maggie. And we are, we are, I am on my way to the desk to tell somebody, anybody, lock the doors. Someone has grabbed our daughter. Call the police. And about that time, little three-year-old Maggie comes skipping out from the middle of one of those round clothes rack things. I mean, I was yelling three feet away from her, and she did not come out. So she comes prancing out, and I was so mad at her that I gave her the biggest hug and kiss she'd ever had in her life. Right? She was, it was, the whole thing was less than five minutes, probably less than two minutes, but it was, it was, it was a lifetime of two minutes. Why? Because, because my daughter, somebody in my family was lost. One of the things I love about Ken Pretty's presentation and the way he, from a very reformed perspective, helps us to understand this whole evangelism thing, sharing our faith with others, helping others to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, is it's kind of like that. God is sovereign. God knows who his people are. God knows who his family is, and he's not going to lose anybody. But there are a whole lot of people out there who are part of our family. We don't know it. They don't know it. And they're lost. Do we care? Are we going to go out and look for them? We're not going to know who they are without going out and trying to find them. We need to go out and find them. Third thing for uh, Nehemiah in his revitalization is a brutal acceptance of personal and corporate failure. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, he says. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah, at the outset here, as God is calling him, as this, as this call is hitting him like a ton of bricks, his immediate response is a heartfelt confession. And confession means he starts in agreement with reality. If things haven't gone well for Nehemiah's people in general and currently back in Jerusalem, and they haven't, it isn't God's fault. Their misfortune is, in large measure, an outworking of the curses their God has told them to expect if they were disobedient to Him. Part of Nehemiah's prayer says this. If we were unfaithful, you said this was going to happen. We were going to be scattered. And sure enough, that's exactly what's happened. But, you said, if we were faithful, you would call us back. And that is also happening, he says in his prayer. See, what Nehemiah's people need, first and foremost, is forgiveness. Confession means also that he starts clean with God. He acknowledges his need and his people's need for God, the only source of the things they truly have to have, and it begins with forgiveness. His inclusion of personal and family confession is also somewhat unique. He says, I, I'm in this too, and my father's family, we are in this too. We have sinned against you also. So again, we look at us, and it strikes me that the need for corporate confession and repentance may be a major stumbling block for churches and individuals in need of revitalization. 
if having to, to come clean with God about what's actually going on and our, and our um, sin, our disobedience, our, our cowardice, if, if admitting all of that is an important initial step in this revitalization process, you can see why a lot of people say, no thanks. But it's important. Think about this. What's our message to the people of Reno? The people out there, the non-church people. Oh, and in Reno, there's lots of them, right? Um, what do we have to say to them? You're wrong. You're bad. That's what they think we have to say to them. You know, we're, we're church people. We're just telling them we're right and you're wrong. You know, we're good and you're bad. God likes us and not you so much. That, that's, that, that can't be our message, right? So what is our message? How about God loves you? That's a good message. God loves you and, and he wants you to love him. But Jesus said there was something else that goes along with this, didn't he? What's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And a second one is like it. I mean, he's, no sooner is that out of his mouth, he says, there's another one that's just like it, very similar, grows right out of it, and that is what? So you guys know. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, neighbors, we're supposed to love you like God loves you. Like we love ourselves. We're supposed to care about you like we care about ourselves. So how about this message to the people of Reno? Hey, we're, we're part of the Church of Jesus Christ in Reno, Nevada. And we have failed you. We have cared more about ourselves, our buildings, our budgets, our programs, our success, our growth, than we have cared about you. We are sorry, and we are asking our God, your God, to forgive us and to help us be better about this. Revitalization comes to God's people when they come to God in realistic sadness for sin. And then Nehemiah experiences stirring confidence in God manifested in prayer. Verse 5, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Nehemiah, in prayer, reminds God of his character and his promises. I would suggest that God didn't need to be reminded. God's memory is quite good, thank you. However, in this process, it seems to me that Nehemiah was probably better reminding himself and his people of God's character and purposes. It is God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's will, God's power that matters for Nehemiah and his people. If Nehemiah's rebuilding project, rebuilding city walls and rebuilding people's faith, is going to have success, God is going to have to act for them and with them. And Nehemiah is confident from the outset that that is exactly what God is going to do. If we are not very good about looking for lost family members, 
about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with those yet to believe, is it because we have too little confidence in ourselves or too little confidence in God? Maybe we ought to be reminding our Lord of His promises to seek and to save those who are lost and not to lose any of those that are His. And thus, maybe like Nehemiah, we find that it is God who is actually reminding us and stirring us to action with confidence in Him. Revitalization comes to God's people when they come to God in realistic sadness for sin and serious confidence in His faithfulness and strength. Finally, um, Nehemiah's revitalization involves courageous implementation of next step action in God's time. Let me explain that. Verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah sees perhaps that all his past experience and his current privileged position are in place so he will be able to act effectively in this moment. His focus in prayer is significant, I think. He doesn't allow himself to be overwhelmed and paralyzed by the enormity of the whole task. A natural defense mechanism, I think, for us weak and cowardly humans. This thing is huge. There's no way I can do that. I mean, first of all, I've got to figure out a way to get there. It's a four-month trip. Once I get there, why would anyone listen to me? I mean, to do all of this stuff, it's impossible. And so we tell ourselves stuff like this, which Nehemiah didn't do, and then we say, so I'm not doing anything. What's the point, right? He didn't do that. He doesn't allow himself to be overwhelmed. Instead, he looks at his next step, which is getting permission to go to Jerusalem and rebuild from his king. Now, this is a courageous move, when you consider that in order for the king to give him this permission, he's going to have to reverse a decree that he has already made, that you can read about in Ezra chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. The king, the same king, Artaxerxes, has made a decree before, under the influence of Israel's opponents, who've given him false reports, and his response to these false reports about what's going on in this foreign area, is he has laid down a decree and says, no more building in the city of Jerusalem. So let it be ordered, so let it be done. And that's the last thing we've heard about building in Jerusalem according to the king. Now, now Nehemiah is going to go in there and say, uh, King, I'd like to leave your service here and I'd like to go travel to Jerusalem and I'd like to help rebuild the walls there. It's a courageous thing for him to ask. It could ruin everything for him. But he also sees in this request, this specific thing that he's focusing on and praying about, that in that there will be a clear and expected verification of God's call. God's calling me to do this. I think he's going to make the way clear. This next step, I need his help. He counts on his help. And the help comes, and it's a verification. It's like, okay, God's in this. God's calling me to do this. He waits for God's timing, and then he asks. And you can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2. So for us, finally... Let me suggest this. I would encourage each of us to set aside the crushing burden of trying to bring the whole of this beautiful and ugly city of Reno to faith in Jesus Christ.
Okay? Lose the debilitating idea that we must pull all the devil's tentacles from the daily doings of our godless region in order to make any of our redemptive goals possible. Lose this overwhelming sense of the enormity of the task at hand and all the forces arrayed against us, which we're very aware of. Lose that. Instead, let's think about and pray about that next little step that God has for me, that God has for us. Who do you know that needs to know the love of God, how precious they are in His sight, and what Jesus Christ has done for them? Anybody? Who has God put on your heart for prayer and in His time to ask for permission to tell them about your faith, about your Lord and Savior? And that's what we're going to do. Prayers of the people comes next. That's what we're going to do. We're all going to pray. And I'm going to encourage you to stop and think. I'm guessing that for some of you, there's somebody who's on your heart that's been on your heart for a long time. Let's pray for them. Maybe somebody new comes to your mind and says, you know, I really need to pray for this new person that I've met that, that just is lost. But they're a great person. I, I, I love them. Let's pray for them. That they... That the, that the truth of God, that the love of God would dawn upon them, that miraculously God would show himself to them and that they would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ who is Lord and Savior. Let's just pause right now. We're going to use these moments of silence. I'm going to encourage you to pray for that person that God uh, puts in your heart, puts in your mind. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, hear us now. Help us to pray with confidence. Help us to pray with courage. Help us to pray with faith for that someone that you care about more than we do and that you are calling us to lift before you that they might come to know you, that they might give themselves into your will and your love and your truth and your goodness. Hear us now.